Okay, we'll get started this morning. I'll open this up in prayer. Holy Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the people that are here. We pray that you would speak to our hearts. We pray that you would open our eyes. And we pray that, God, you would change us. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so this morning, um, we'll conclude uh, the section of our time where we are looking at the Trinity and this idea that the Father has planned, the Son has executed the plan, and the Spirit is applying the plan. And then next week, we'll begin to look at um, our own hearts and what does the Scripture say about the heart and what does the Scripture say about the process of change. Um, And the things that we've talked about thus far have really pointed primarily to the person of God. And sadly, in, in our culture, the church culture, the things that we've covered, you would probably not find them in a self-help book under the title of Christian. You probably would not hear much about the work of the Trinity and the implications of the gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit, the things that we'll talk about today. So that's why I've taken time in a class about the gospel and transformation uh, to really hone in on uh, the person of God in this process. And, and the things that we've covered in the, in the last four weeks and today, we'll come back around to them as it, it uh, comes to applying them practically to the, to the heart. Second uh, Corinthians 3.18 says this. Uh, we'll start in verse 17. Now, the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord, who is spirit. So there's this idea as we behold the things that we've talked about in the last few weeks, that that in and of itself, uh, there's a transformative piece to that, that as we behold the glory of God and we behold the work of God and we meditate on the things of God, uh, as we meditate on the gospel, As we remind ourselves that the Holy Spirit is with us and working currently, moment by moment, that that in and of itself, without having to apply a bunch of methodologies, there's a transforming component to that. Um, Something that I always caution interns about when I'm training interns is we can, as Christians, whether we're in a counseling situation or just trying to apply things in our own lives, we can... We can forget the God of Scripture and simply try to apply a bunch of methodologies to try to produce change in our lives. Um, Or we can make God just a means to an end. But we always want to remember that we can't minimize God in that way. We don't want to minimize God and, and sort of put him as a side note and implement all these methodologies. The whole change process that we've been talking about thus far is... Uh, initiated by God, the timing of change is on the timetable of God and the way that he chooses to change us and the context that he chooses to put us in uh, towards to, to promote that kind of change. is all up to him. And so as we conclude this week, I want you to remember, behold the glory of God. Take time to reflect on the things that we've discussed uh, in this class so far. Because that in and of itself, just becoming intimately acquainted with God in prayer and through Scripture, 
uh, there's a transformative piece to that as well. Um, one thing that we didn't look at last week that I just want to very quickly touch and then we move forward uh, talking about the work of the Spirit in our lives. If you'll remember last week, we, we really honed in on the work of Christ and how the spe- His specific life is relevant to the specific struggles that we face each and every day. Um, and the importance of recalling and remembering the implications of the gospel, especially in our moments of struggle and failure. Um, our tendency as Christians is we want to add something to the gospel. Um, when I first became acquainted with the writings of Francis Schaeffer, a statement that he made that really was a transformative statement for me was that we are saved by the finished work of Jesus Christ upon the cross plus nothing. And we always try to add something. And the Bible puts, talks about two yokes, two different yokes. And in Galatians 5.1, if you want to turn there, Galatians 5.1, Paul is talking about a yoke. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, tell, uh, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. And so Paul is warning uh, the Galatians. Don't try to add to what Christ has already done. There, was, there, was, there were people coming into that setting that were saying, yes, uh, believing in Christ is a wonderful thing, but we still need circumcision. And Paul was pushing against that, and he said, if you choose to try and attempt to add something to what Christ has already done, then what you're doing is you're putting on your shoulders a yoke of slavery. And it is this that he identified as falling away from grace when we try to attempt to add something to what Christ has already done. And you contrast this to the words of Jesus in Matthew 11, verse 29. Starting verse 28, Matthew eleven twenty-eight. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So do you see the contrast? The people that Paul was speaking to were trying to add something to what Christ has already done. When Christ beckons us, no, take my yoke upon you. Take what I have already done on your behalf upon you. And in union with me, you will finally find rest for your weary soul. And when you can't get over the particular struggle that you're having or uh, the depression is hanging on longer than you like or the anxiety struggle is is not uh, dissipating or the marriage isn't get, getting better or you've blown it with your anger again, take my yoke upon you. Remember, you are united with me and there you will have rest for your weary soul. And that is linked very much to last week and that's, I didn't get to cover that, so I just wanted to put that in front of you guys, okay? 
Now we, we move from the work of Christ and what he has done <clears throat> to the work of the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. And I'll start as we do each week with a couple of quotes and a question, okay? A.W. Tozer said this, We may as well face it. The whole level of spiritu- spirituality among us is low. We have measured ourselves by ourselves until the incentive to seek higher plateaus in the things of the Spirit is all but gone. We have imitated the world, sought popular favor, manufactured delights to substitute for the joy of the Lord, and produced a cheap and synthetic power to substitute the power of the Holy Ghost. And I think we can all um, see where he's coming from when you look at um, preachers on television and different things that we've, we try to manufacture these things. We try to become popular to the culture and, and we substitute uh, the power of the Holy Spirit. And then St. Basil the Great, um, who was a bishop of the church uh, in the mid-300s, he was a supporter of the Nicene Creed. He said this, What does the Spirit do? His works are ineffable in majesty and innumerable in quantity. How can we even ponder what extends beyond the ages? What, had, what did he do before creation began? How great are the graces he showered on creation? What power will he, will he wield in the age to come? He existed. He pre-existed. He coexisted with the Father and the Son before the ages. Even if you can imagine anything beyond the ages, you will discover that the Spirit is even further beyond. And so we want to talk about the Spirit of the Lord this morning. And the question before us is ultimately, who empowers us to change? Who empowers us to change? If, let's recall again the, the couple that we've been uh, keeping in mind as we've worked through this material. Um, Jeff and Sarah. Jeff's an angry man. He's been abusive. Sarah now struggles with anxiety and struggles with wanting to be close to him. Um, and we'll come back around to, to that couple here in just a bit. So far, what we've been talking about has primarily dealt with justification or the objective nature of the work of God in declaring us righteous. So everything that Christ has done uh, has accomplished his work, and now in faith we are declared righteous in Christ. This is different than making us righteous in Christ. John Frame says it, uh, says it, what we've talked about thus far is called an alien righteousness. But today we're going to move more into the subjective work of God and the believer by transitioning into the area of progressive sanctification, wherein the Holy Spirit is actively working in us. Where the Holy Spirit is actually making us holy, making us righteous, making us image Christ more and more throughout our lives. But before we go there, I want to just deconstruct a couple of uh, models of change that are very prominent in our day, things that are very uh, popular within our own culture when it comes to the process of change. So I call this uh, therapy in a closed system. And what this typically looks like is you have a counselor or a helper and and an individual in need of help trying to figure things out. And one of the approaches that has been 
uh, introduced through secular psychology is in this closed system, uh, the counselor and the counselee are, are looking at the intrapersonal, the inner, that the problems are within and the answers are within. And so a lot of it, a lot of the therapy is uh, very introspective. Um, you guys might be familiar with Freudian psychology, looking at the internal dynamics. And, and while he, he does look at family history and things of that nature, it's really about what's going on inside uh, the id, the ego, the superego, and, and all that's going on there. The cognitive psychologies, which brings something good to the process because uh, through, through uh, research and just observation of people, uh, they have created a school where, hey, we want to acknowledge that our cognitions and our thought processes are important. Uh, but the problem, again, lies within this idea that it's all inward, that we have to just find our, our uh, inner distortions, cognitive distortions, and then through our own power and insight, create new ways of believing. But it's all in a closed system. It's all very subjective. There's not really an objective right or wrong in terms of thinking. Um, it's, it's very much up to the individual and what makes them feel better. A second approach, but it's also within a closed system, moves from the intrapersonal to the interpersonal. So it's going to look at this horizontal reality. And it's going to look at things like family systems. So rather than just have an individual in a counseling situation, uh, maybe we bring the whole family in. Uh, in family counseling, very often, if a, if a family brings in a child who's being really disruptive, uh, the idea uh, of, of family systems is that that child is what would be called the identified patient, which is really the, that child is simply um, showing the this, this dysfunction and the, symptomo the, the symptomology of the dysfunction of the greater family. So they'll want to bring the whole family in and talk about the whole system. Um, transactional analysis. How many of you guys remember that old model back in the day uh, where it talks about uh, people responding to one another either from the, a place of an adult, a place of a parent, or a place of a child, and that they, those transactions can, can really disrupt a marriage. So if a husband is coming from a parent position and talking to his wife as though she's a child, there's going to be some problems there, right? And so they move from the intrapersonal, we need to look inside to find the problem, to the in, uh, interpersonal. Let's look at the person's context and the family and uh, life situations that they're in currently. Um, and, but it's all in a closed system. What, when we begin to talk about God and especially the Holy Spirit, um, we are no longer operating in a closed system. We are saying that there's something going on in the unseen. And we open up this change process where we're not only looking at the horizontal, but we're also looking at the vertical. That there is something going on in the heavenlies that's very relevant to us. We've talked a lot about the Father creating the plan and the Son uh, uh, accomplishing the plan, but... Now, when we begin to look at sanctification in this, the subjective uh, aspect of our change, 
uh, it forces us to begin to consider the work of the Holy Spirit. It may be said that if the Father has a plan, the Son has fulfilled the plan, and the Holy Spirit is now executing the plan. The terrain of human flourishing, whether we are considering the mental, psychological, emotional, or behavioral, each heavily influenced, even caused by the spiritual, has been claimed by the third person of the Trinity. The type and depth of change pursued by those within counseling or within the Christian life far exceeds the therapeutic pursuits of the secular. That is because it is a divine change brought forth by the awe-inspiring power of the Holy Spirit. And one of the primary responsibilities of the Holy Spirit in our transformation unfolds under the doctrine of progressive sanctification. And the Westminster Larger Catechism defines sanctification this way. What is sanctification? Sanctification is a work of God's grace whereby they whom God hath before the foundation of the world chosen to be holy are in time through the powerful operation of his spirit applying the death and resurrection of Christ unto them, renewed in their whole man after the image of God, having the seeds of repentance unto life and all other saving graces put into their hearts and those graces so stirred up, increased and strengthened as that they more and more die unto sin and rise unto newness of life. John Frame notes a distinction between justification and sanctification. The catechism describes justification and adoption each as an act of God's free grace. It describes sanctification, however, as a work of God's grace. I think the distinction is this. An act is instantaneous, a single intervention that is never repeated. A work, however, is an ongoing activity of God in a process. Okay? Now, as we dive into this, I want to make sure that that we're not um, putting forth the idea um, that a particular change is guaranteed. All right? We kn- it is guaranteed that the Holy Spirit is working in us. It is guaranteed that He's committed to our transformation. But there are specific struggles in our life that, that um, we may wrestle with for the entirety of our life. And that doesn't mean that the Spirit is not working. That doesn't mean that our faith has failed us. Um, but it does mean that we have to come to God and trust His timing and trust the way He chooses to work out the process of change. What we are assured of is that one day the perfect change of God in our transformation will occur upon uh, glorification when we see God face to face. I would like us, uh, if you guys wouldn't mind, I, I would like us to read some passages together out loud. If you would, if some of you would volunteer and pull out your Bible and, and let's just think about this question. What is the Spirit of God up to? What does the Bible reveal to us that He is doing? Um, who, who will read Titus 3, 3 through 7? Titus 3, 3 through 7. Volunteer? Just show me your hand. All right. I'm going to call these out and then we'll come back and read them, okay? John 16, 8. Can someone? All right. John 16, 8. John 16, 13. Got it? Romans 5, 3 through 5. You got it? 
Ephesians 3, 14 through 19. Okay. Ephesians 3, 14 through 19. Hebrews 10, 11 through 17. Got it? A few more here. Romans 8, 26 and 27. Got it? And then 1 Corinthians 6, 19. All right. So let's start with uh, Titus 3, 3 through 7. So what does that passage tell us that the Holy Spirit is up to particularly? And hold on to that verse because we're going to come back to it in a minute. Okay. What is the Holy Spirit doing according to that passage? Say that again. Renewing. He's renewing. The Holy Spirit is regenerating us. He's transforming us. Okay. In salvation. Um, John 16, 8. Who had John 16, 8? And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. So what is the Spirit doing there? He convicts us. Okay, the reason that we struggle in our hearts when we sin against God is because the Holy Spirit is... Working, He's convicting us that we are sinning against a holy God. That's one of his roles. So he regenerates us, and then upon regeneration, our hearts are transformed from darkness into the kingdom of light. And in that place, the Holy Spirit is faithful to us to convict us when we are sinning against God. John sixteen thirteen. What's it telling us he's doing there? He's guiding us in the truth. What a faithful God that we have. He doesn't just save us and leave us to figure it out on our own. As we interact with God's word, the Holy Spirit is guiding us in truth. He's helping us understand the scriptures. He's helping us uh, appreciate um, the richness of what God has given us in himself. Romans 5, 3 through 5. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. 
What's it telling us there? Yes. And, it, and it's saying specifically that the Holy Spirit is nurturing our hearts with the love of the Father during our trials. That one of the things that the Holy Spirit wants to do is to remind us in our more difficult moments that we are loved. And really this goes back to, in some way, to the things that we've looked at in the last couple of weeks that that the Holy Spirit reminds us of the love uh, that was bestowed upon us in what Christ did on our behalf in giving his life. And that's comforting because my tendency is to go back into the closed system of change. My system, my, my tendency is to forget uh, in, a, in a challenging season that God loves me. Just as dearly as when I feel I'm being blessed beyond measure. But I can, I can rejoice in the fact that the Holy Spirit is not going to let me forget that. The Holy Spirit is faithful to remind me that I am loved. And that God's love is being poured out on me, even in my weaknesses, even in my sin. Ephesians three fourteen through 19. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth, and length, and height, and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Hmm. So the Holy Spirit there is doing what? Strengthening and mm-hmm. He strengthens us in, in power and helps us comprehend the depth of Christ's love for us. And again, this is moment by moment. Every day we wake up, the Holy Spirit is working subjectively in our lives. Hebrews 10, 11 through 17. So the Holy Spirit writes the laws of God upon our hearts and he refuses to remember our lawless deeds against us. And if you notice in the entirety of that passage, the beginning of what was read there is talking about the high priest who completed his once for all work and made perfect for all times those he's being perfected. So you see there 
uh, what we've been talking about. Jesus accomplished the work. And then you see as, uh, towards the end of that verse, the Holy Spirit applying that work in that he doesn't remember our lawless deeds against us any longer. Romans eight twenty six and 27. Who had that? How would you summarize that? Intercession. Isn't it an amazing thing to, to just consider all day today, since you've gotten up until you lay your head down, the Holy Spirit is praying for you. He's interceding for you. In moments that we don't even know we should be in prayer, he's praying. And he knows our hearts perfectly, and uh, he's praying the perfect prayers for us on our behalf. How does that strike you guys? Reassuring. That God in his love for us is so committed to us. That he's willing to pray for us when we don't even know what we should be praying. And when you think it, it kind of makes you feel rested in that moment if you can remember that. It's because that when you're at your worst point, it's, it's that you lost. Yes. But if you remember, you can't even think straight to ask. You can find that rest. That's good. So being, being aware that the Holy Spirit is interceding for us brings rest to the soul in the difficult time. Yes, sir. So let, let me repeat that. Uh, the Holy Spirit, one of the things he is doing is helping us become aware and convinced that we are truly known by the God of the universe. And that he's working uh, intricately in our minds to help us uh, really understand what that means. But at the same time, knowing that he knows us so deeply, knowing that he's so intimately involved in those aspects of our heart, it could also be discouraging, despairing, confusing 
because we're not changing as we would like. Or we're not progressing in our sanctification along the trajectory that, that we would have written had we been writing the story. And as we move forward in this class, we're going to talk about that struggle of when, when sin seems to be dominating or when suffering doesn't dissipate. Um, how do we deal with that biblically? Knowing how faithful God is in the, in the first five classes that we've, we've talked about Him. Um, but we are known. And we're known by the, the one who created all things. And that's a profound thing to meditate on. Um, did, I, did I say 1 Corinthians 6.19? Okay, who has that one? So the Holy Spirit dwells within us. The Holy Spirit dwells within us. Um, the final work of the Holy Spirit that I want to discuss will link His work to maybe what in our culture we would put into the category of mental health. Okay? What is mental health? And does the Spirit's work weigh in on this creation? On this question, sorry. Um, so when we think of change, sometimes just because of the time in which we live, we we can fall prey to thinking in categories of the, the secular world, um, such as mental health. And, and there's value in understanding uh, literature from the secular world as it pertains to to mental health. Uh, but in my world, it's, it's not quite as clear-cut as what commercials might portray on the television. Um, let's just think of this word mental health and what is it? How, how does the culture or the disciplines define it? The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention's definition says this, mental health is a state of well-being in which the individual realizes his or her own abilities, can cope with normal stresses of life, can work productively and fruitfully, and is able to make a contribution to his or her community. Um, that's the CDC's definition of mental health. The American Psychiatric Association's explanation of mental health is this. Mental health involves effective functioning in daily activities, resulting in productive activities like work, school, or caregiving, healthy relationships, and the, the ability to adapt to change and cope with adversity. Um, for me, personally, those definitions are extremely vague. They don't tell me a whole lot. Um, and obviously, because of their origin, they are located in the closed system that we talked about at the beginning. And here's some questions that emerge for me when I'm thinking in, in this category um, of mental health as constructed by uh, the secular community. The individual realizes his or own abilities, but how does one do this? Who is to decide which abilities should be realized? And once realized, then what? What is the purpose of such abilities? And when the definitions talk about an in, a mental health being a person who can cope with normal stresses of life, what is our criterion for normal stresses? 
In places like the Sudan, a normal stressor is a lack of food and water. In Afghanistan, a normal stressor may be located in the threat of being assaulted by a member of the Taliban. In the U.S., a normal stressor might be considered having a heavy caseload at work or dealing with a family disagreement, dealing with sexual abuse. The phrase normal stresses of life is very arbitrary and is based on the context of the individual. Um, does this mean that a solid definition of mental health is also arbitrary? The ability to adapt to change and cope with adversity is also in the definitions. What kind of change or adversity? Divorce, change of schools as a teenager, losing everything one owns in a hurricane, not being allowed to have your iPhone for a week as a means of discipline, not being able to pay a bill on time, having a spouse or friend who is critical, being imprisoned by ISIS. What is the American Psychiatric Association talking about when they use this phrase? And we don't really know. I mean, that definition, if I took it to another country, would I don't know if it would be a viable definition. Because there are people under such stressors that it's hard to just have a, a, a place of, of calm. Um, and is that called mental illness? Um, the Word of God, however, deals with very specific markers when it comes to the Spirit's work of change in our life. And it really gives us a glorious and beautiful picture of health. And we can use the word mental illness if we want to. Um, but it's really a, an issue of the heart and, and a, a spiritual issue. And I have a hard time in the way that I look at a person to separate spiritual, psychological, spiritual, mental. It's all so interrelated. It's very hard for me to, to say they're distinct things. Um, go back to the Titus passage and let's just see what I'm talking about here. Titus 3, 3 through 7. And, and notice Paul says, here's... Here's what we were, and, and these things are very much counseling issues. These, these are the things that people come to me every week and talk about. And then upon the Spirit's work, something happens. So you, you see in that passage a, a pretty distinct moment of change, do you not? That we were once one type of person, full of evil and malice and lust and darkness. And upon the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, something changed. And when that change occurs, all of us in this room who've experienced that change enter into a journey of transformation. And the aim of transformation that the Bible offers is relevant whether you're dealing with a caseload, 
struggling in Afghanistan, struggling in Sudan. You have had your home destroyed by a hurricane. What the Bible offers in terms of spiritual health, mental health, what is that? The Bible, it, it transcends situations, it transcends culture, and it, it gives us a true marker. What are we aiming for? What is this thing called health? And I think it's all over Scripture, but we'll just look at one particular passage, Galatians five twenty-two and 23. You guys are probably very familiar with it. Well, I'll start actually at verse 18 because it, it, again, goes from what we once were to now what God is doing in us. Starting in verse 18, but if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. Now, the works of the flesh are evidence, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And then here's the change that the Spirit is committed to bringing forth in our lives. And in my world, if I see someone going through a difficult situation, even if they're struggling with depression, if they're growing in these kind of things, there's something very healthy and very beautiful going on there. No longer being depressed isn't my final marker for health. My final marker of health is found to a degree in the next verse. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, Joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And so very often when I have someone with major depressive uh, struggles, and we've done everything that we can think of to try to alleviate and They've gone to the doctor, they're taking medication, they're exercising, they're applying different things that we've talked about, but they're still depressed. One of the things that we might have to discuss and, and talk about is um, patiently awaiting the work of the Spirit in their lives. Asking them how can they continue in the midst of this dark place to wake up daily and worship the risen Lord? We might have a conversation about the widow and the Pharisees. And the Pharisees gave very little out of their abundance. And the widow gave all she had. She gave one coin, that's all she had. And Jesus said, who gave more? Well, the person who's majorly depressed, them getting up and taking a shower and getting the children off to school is worth a lot because they're giving out of their emotional poverty. And if they do that to the glory of the Lord, something beautiful is happening even though they feel terrible. Versus a person who's not depressed that's just in the routine of life and doesn't even think twice about the glory of the Lord. And so the Spirit of God is at work in all of us. And He's committed to bringing forth this fruit in our lives. And, and sometimes as believers, we have to think in a little bit different categories than what the culture looks at when it comes to health. And I think 
just doing this for 20 years, the scriptures offer such deep insight and can bring hope when that circumstance doesn't change. Because even when things aren't changing out here, God is doing something in here. Let me pray. Father, we are so thankful that you have sent us your spirit. And as someone has said today, it's because of your spirit that we are conscious that we are known. It's because of your spirit that our eyes have been opened and we can see our need for you, that our ears and our minds have been opened to hear and understand the gospel of Jesus Christ. Without your spirit, we would all be lost. So I pray today that each of us here would remember moment by moment you are with us. You dwell within us. You're empowering us to do the things that at times we think we cannot do. You're interceding for us. And you're changing us to the glory of the Father. We thank you and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.